Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by Monica Engebretson of Cruelty Free International. And they will be discussing one of the areas of animal rights in which we're really seeing some progress. Cosmetics testing. This is actually kind of interesting to me because... I started getting my nails done recently again for the first time in 100 years. And my salon called Pure Soul in Rochester is totally vegan and cruelty free. And every time I'm there, someone comes in to make sure it's vegan. And if it is, they're like, oh, good. Can I make an appointment? And I'm like, what, 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 what world am I living in? Well, I mean, you're living in the world of Kinder Beauty, which, of course, is the company that you also work for. And you've mentioned before that not everybody who who buys this stuff is vegan in their food practices. But I see it everywhere, all of these makeups uh, claiming to be vegan and cruelty-free. And I should say, it's important to note that the interview goes beyond cosmetics testing, but that seems to be the area where we're having significant change right now. It's so nice to be talking about anything in animal rights where actually something good is going on. It's so nice and so rare. Yes, it is good to be talking about that in animal rights, or should I say in animal freedom. Well, yeah, now you're referring to like this comment I made. I saw I saw this woman, Layla Kassam. She's from the UK. And she runs an organization called the Animal Think Tank. And I don't know a lot about them. They seem great, but I don't know a lot about them. But I noticed that she's talking about building a mass movement for animal freedom. And I just thought it was interesting that, you know, I'm not sure, I don't want to speak for her, but that she's kind of substituting the term animal freedom for the term animal rights. And I kind of like it. I mean, I think that could really speak to people. People understand that animals want to be free. People don't really understand what rights animals should have. Or, you know, you always see this crap about, oh, they want animals to have the same rights as people, which is, of course, is ridiculous. Nobody's saying animals should vote. Well, it would be nice if animals could vote. But no, even I'm not saying that. They probably would do better than than we do. Well, they certainly would do better than we do. But anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. So yeah, I'm going to try to work with that animal freedom movement. I like it. Yeah, I like it too. I like it a lot. I mean, I I was discussing this with Christopher Sebastian recently when he was on our hen house a few weeks ago, and we were sort of rotating through the animal rights movement, the animal advocacy movement. We just thought, let's just call it whatever, because on some level, I don't really care what people call things as long as they leave animals the fuck alone. I know it's the the leave animals the fuck alone movement. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I like animal freedom movement. I like the fact that even saying it might give people pause and might allow for the opportunity to discuss what that actually means to you. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I'm thinking of it as a marketing ploy, like what would it most appeal to people? And I think, you know, animal rights movement, it gives people a lot of room to say stupid things because they start talking about like how we believe that animals should have the same rights as humans. And that's not what we believe. We believe that animals should have the rights that they need, you know, not the right to vote, though it is hard to believe they could do any worse with voting than than humans do. <laughs> but I digress. Right. All in all, I liked it. And I, I think I might try to adopt it. It's cool. Yeah, I like it too. Another thing that I liked was this unbelievably great article that I saw in The Guardian. I, this article just really, really excited me. And I don't know whether it's true or not, but the title of the article is Plant-Based Meat, By Far the Best Climate Investment Report Finds. And this was a report by the Boston Consulting Group, and it examined all of these 
all of these areas of climate advocacy where there's room for major progress. And the highest point in their estimation was stopping animal-based meats. I was astounded. Like they put this above fossil fuels and, and, and cement and all of these other things. And one of the reasons is, you know, not that the, obviously these other things are super, super important, but I think that there's two reasons. One is that, that meat is a lot worse than everybody realizes. And two, connected to that is that we've made virtually no progress on meat. I mean, all these other things, there's awareness, there's, there's certainly not enough change being made, but People are working on the changes. There, there's an industry growing up around them. And, and there's just very little going on with plant-based proteins. There's very little mass movement towards giving up meat. So I think that article is, I, I think we should put that article in the show notes. I think it's just really, really important talking points to have in your pocket when you get into one of these annoying conversations mm. uh, with people who kind of don't care about the animals. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited that there are so many companies that are like every day you see more of them. I, there's a lot of criticism going around saying, well, a lot of the new companies aren't very good and and whatever. And it just really reminded me of the early days of the internet. Mm. I think I th heard somebody talking about this too, that in the early days of the internet, and I remember this, it wasn't that long ago. What, what are we talking about? Like the 2000s, maybe the late yeah. 90s? 25 years or so, yeah. Oh my God, that was 25 years ago? Uh, okay, I'll move on. <laughs> and like there are all of these startups because they were going to get on the, in on the internet and there was all this investment and all of these new people quit their jobs and they started new websites and new internet-based businesses and most of them failed. I mean, except for Amazon, pretty much all of them failed because they got out ahead of where things were going. And I feel like that's where the alt-meat movement is now that, you know, some of the companies, some of the stocks aren't doing that well. There's the products coming out that aren't as good. Everybody's saying the market is oversaturated. I just think that's bullshit. I think it's just part of the process. It started big. Then, you know, things mm -hmm. don't catch on in a minute, especially if you look at anything that the meat industry is publishing. They're all panicked about it unless they're getting into it and then they're all excited about it. So I think that's a really good sign. We'll definitely put this in. Yeah. So all in all, we have a lot of good news today. That's really unusual for us. Well, last week I, I told you about all of the trends that I was seeing in my research for 2023 trends. And this kind of goes right along with that. So... It is exciting. It's very exciting. I love it. Uh, we will link to these in the show notes. And so, someone else who, would you say, Monica, is going to give us good news or not good news or a mix? Well, it's it, it's a mix, obviously. I think that the, the stuff she's working on, we're seeing much more progress than other areas of animal protection or animal freedom, I mean. Right. So... It's really good news. And, and the progress is really becoming exponential. And as you pointed out, people, for some reason, really are catching on to this. The idea that mm -hmm. their makeup should be makeup and other products. It's not just cosmetic testing, as I pointed out, that this is a horrible thing to do. You know, and I've seen that when I've taught kids, too. They tend to focus on animals and science, which you would think would be the most justifiable use, not for makeup, but for scientific research. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, people have a big block about food. Short answer long, I guess. I'm 
<laughs> yeah, there's a lot of positive news. There's a lot more to be done, no doubt about mm-hmm. it. And there's some some stuff that's going on in Congress. And I know that seems ridiculous because nothing gets done in Congress, but these actually can be bipartisan issues. There's stuff that's going on in Congress right now that are really interesting to learn about and perhaps get behind. So yeah, good and bad news, but I would say more good than bad. And on that note, I think we should transition to the interview with Monica Engebretsen. She is the North American Head of Public Affairs for Cruelty Free International, an organization working to end animal testing worldwide. Monica has worked in animal protection since 1999, which Marianne was almost 25 years ago, okay? (laughs) Are you saying that Monica is really old? Is that the point you're trying to make? I was not saying that. Uh, She's been working on a wide variety of issues. And most recently, her work for Culture Free International has focused on initiatives in the U.S. and Canada to end cosmetic testing on animals, working to accelerate the replacement of animals in FDA regulatory tests advancing humane science funded by the NIH and maximizing the number of animals released from laboratories. She and Marianne will be discussing all of these efforts and more right after this. Animals need you and you need data. Did you know that 41% of people who experience animal advocacy say it influences them to eat fewer animal products? Or that 42% of people's vegan or vegetarian journeys are motivated by health? At Faunalytics, the mission is to empower animal advocates with research, analysis, strategies, and messages that maximize their effectiveness to reduce animal suffering. They conduct essential research, maintain the largest free online research library of studies on animals and advocacy, and directly support animal advocates like you in your work to save animals' lives. Sign up for Faunalytics weekly email alerts to stay in the know about the latest research that can support your animal advocacy. Visit faunalytics.org forward slash sign up. That's F-A-U-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot org forward slash sign up to get signed up today. Welcome to our hen house, Monica. Ah, Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you because I feel like we don't cover this issue enough. And yet it is probably the issue where the animal protection movement is seeing more success than perhaps any other area, or at least more potential for success and more actual success, actually. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, though I bet almost all of our listeners are familiar with the Leaping Bunny, they just don't realize who it's connected to. Can you explain what Cruelty Free International is? So Cruelty Free International was established 125 years ago in the UK by Frances Power Cobe, who was a women's rights campaigner who turned her attention to anti-vivisection work and founded the British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection. And in 2013, we changed our name to Cruelty Free International to better reflect our international work. 
we work only on the issue of animals in research and testing. So we're a global organization that works solely on that issue because this industry, the pharmaceutical industry and chemicals industries, they're, they're all international. So it does no good to drive out testing or experiments in one country only to have it pop up in the other or if regulations require testing in one country, then you haven't ended animal testing. So that's why we work globally on this issue. And I'm based here in the U.S. running our U.S. campaigns. I think it's become even more interesting in the past few years how international this issue really is. But that means also that's because it's having some success. So that's why there are these international implications. You mentioned that this always confuses my students. So I'd like to sort it out in the beginning. The difference between research and testing and all of the all of the different ways that animals are used in in science, we'll call it science, even though some of it isn't that scientific, but and, and why they're different, the different categories. Yeah, because testing a lipstick is a lot different than finding a cure for whatever. Yeah, I think we could break it into two main groups of, of types of, of experiments and testing. There's regulatory tests, and those are standardized testing that's designed to see if medicines and chemicals and cosmetics work and are safe. And that usually involves animals either, you know, being forced to eat or inhale a substance or having that substance rubbed onto their skin or injected into their bodies. The other part is types of basic research. And that's the type of research that typically takes place at universities and laboratories. And that's, um, they're usually designed to answer interesting scientific questions that might be useful in the future. It's highly speculative. It's not testing particular medicines or ingredients. And it's, you know, like I said, normally carried out at universities and um, recreational drug research, psychology experiments, and making disease models, trying to make animals have the same diseases that humans do so that they can study that disease. I would assume that that basic research category contains things that are, some are more targeted than others. Is that right? I'm, I'm really just trying to figure out the lay of the land here. That some of them probably are experiments where they really know a lot about something and they're trying to like really focus on something. And others are just kind of what, you know, the really basic research of just like somebody's curious and trying something out. Exactly. There's it's a, it's a huge range, and that's where the National Institutes of Health spends the bulk of its money is in that that space of basic research. And within regulatory testing, isn't some of it not? I mean, it's called regulatory, perhaps, but some of it's required by regulation, and some of it isn't. Is that right? Because a lot of cosmetics testing is not, or all of cosmetics. Actually, now I'm getting into a real question. Uh, but my understanding is that cosmetics testing is not required by regulation as a general rule. So they don't necessarily require the animal tests for animal. Your, your product needs to be demonstrated to be safe, but that same ingredient might be used in a completely different product in a non-cosmetic product where regulatory testing would be required. So it's the same ingredients being tested and cosmetics companies do have to have safety data to prove that their cosmetics are safe. But in the U.S., they don't prescribe a specific set of tests, but they could be. Yeah. So already we're seeing this as a pretty complicated landscape. Can you talk a little bit about the overview of the situation in the U.S., like the number of animals involved and kind of in general, the impact on their lives and deaths? So we have the numbers here somewhere. So we in the U.S. specifically, we it's estimated 192 million animals are used in experiments around the world, and the U.S. is one of the largest users of animals. The fig latest figures from the USDA put it at, at 
over 797,000 animals were killed in research, and that's the most recent numbers in 2019. That includes 68,000 primates, 58,000 dogs, 18,000 cats. And in that number, birds, rats, and mice aren't included in that number because we don't count those, those animals under the USDA. So it's a lot of animals we're talking about, then that's includes regulatory testing as well as the basic research. So in addition to the fact that there is horrific cruelty involved, which should be enough to end all of this in and of itself, what are the most cogent criticisms of using animals in experiments? Because I assume that there are, I mean, we've all heard of, you know, some of the problems with it, that it's useless, that it's not the best evidence. What works? What are the criticisms that are made of, of the use of animals in both in research and in testing that that are actually rising to the surface right now and and making people reconsider whether we can put an end to some of this? So just kind of break that down. It's the, the scientific criticisms of using animals in experiments in a nutshell is that experiments are cruel and unreliable and can even be dangerous. Animals um, for, in the basic research space, animals don't get many of the diseases that humans do, such as the major types of heart disease, major types of cancer, Parkinson's, HIV. So instead, these diseases are artificially induced in the animals to mimic the human condition. But these of course, undermine the complexity of the human condition that are influenced by a wide range of variables, including genetics, socioeconomics, factors deep, you know, psychological problems. So it's not surprising that the treatments that show promise in animals rarely work in humans. For example, we still have, um, despite many decades of studying cancer and Alzheimer's disease and stroke and AIDS, we have no reliable cures for these. And so the support for animal testing is largely based on historical use. And when we look at the area of like product testing, it's the same thing. The animals they've never been very good at predicting human results. And so that's, but on the other side of that, what's exciting is in the last 20 years, 30 years, is there's been this dramatic increase in non-animal methods. And in the scientific, it shows, you know, using um, in vitro cell-based methods, clinical studies, computer modeling, and these all continue to grow that are more human relevant and able to move us in a direction away from animals, but also better outcomes for humans. Yeah, it does seem like the, the thing that's really changed the landscape is that so many alternatives have have developed. What are the major objections to the use of alternatives? What Or are there? Are they just not promoted because people are used to using the other methods? Or are there serious objections? Like, Are there scientists who say, no, these really aren't as good, at least at this juncture? It's a little bit of both. Anytime a new alternative is developed, it has to go through a very long process called validation, where they know they're proving that it's as good or better than the animal model. What's interesting is that the animal's tests have never been validated. They're accepted to be good just for you know long history of use. So the non-animal methods have to reach a higher bar than what's at set for accepting the animal test. Then once the animal test, so if we're thinking of in the area of regulatory testing, for example, those those one for ones like a skin irritation, eye irritation, those once those alternatives are developed and shown to be better or as good as the animal tests, and usually they're better, they have to be used. Um, companies, and they have to feel that they're confident that they will be accepted as safe, that the regulatory ex agencies will accept those tests, and that they'll be accepted internationally. 
because if they have to run the, the alternative test, but then they still have to do the animal test anyway in order to enter another country, of course, they're going to do the test. So regulatory entities can feel like running the animal test is, a, is sort of a checkbox, but also covers their bases because it's what they're used to doing. And on the other hand, you also have to make sure regulatory agencies around the world are comfortable with accepting the alternative. And in other cases, they may say, yeah, in, we'll accept the alternative, but they haven't updated their regulations. So somewhere in the regulations, it will still say the animal test is required. So there's a combination of factors that can lead to the frustrating situation where once you have well-established alternatives, you still will have the animal tests being conducted. Yeah, that really is frustrating. And I can just imagine people really just get set in their ways and there's nothing scientific about it. And that first point you made, uh, you know, that's a really cogent point that I hadn't really thought of, that the animal tests have never been reviewed like, or or never had to pass any tests. And it's the same thing with everything to do with animals. We, In order to get any change for animals, we have to prove that everything's better, like a lot better than the way people already do it. It's It's the same in the food space. It's the same in everything. Animal advocates have to be more cogent, more more persuasive than everybody else because there's always uh, people who are stuck in their ways. Let's talk a little bit about the law. Can you review for us like the current state of, in the U.S., state and federal laws and regulations that kind of oversee all of these uses? I think that there's, when I first started learning about this, it was all at the federal level, but I feel like there have been some changes at the state levels as well that have been really interesting. Yeah, so that's, let's break that down. The, the one overarching law that covers the animals used in laboratories is the Animal Welfare Act. So that covers, but it excludes birds, rats, and mice bred for use in research. So setting that aside, that should make up a huge portion, the rats and mice of animals used in research. But that covers some basic care standards. It's really the most basic care standards of while the animals are in the laboratory of food, water, some space, and very basic care standards and some treatment issues, but it doesn't cover the actual experiments themselves. So it wouldn't prevent some really painful experiments or, you know, prevent that. So it doesn't mean that animals aren't suffering in labs. It's just that's, and it also requires that they count animals that they use, except for, of course, the rats and mice, so that we have the numbers of animals used. And they also report on pain categories, whether the animals were used in something that caused pain or didn't cause pain. And if it caused pain, whether pain relief was provided. So category, you know, the last category would be pain where no pain relief is provided. And so we can see those numbers and that's part of under the Animal Welfare Act. The states haven't done a lot with regard to just the actual regulating the care of animals in laboratories, but they have um, at the state level, we've started working at, with passing different laws to restrict certain types of testing, like cosmetics, saying that if you, three states as uh, many years ago did what we called a mandated alternative law. So they said that if an alternative exists to testing animals, the alternative must be used before conducting the animal test. And that was not for medical, but for any kind of product testing. So California, New York, and New Jersey did that many years ago. And then Virginia recently did that. And that was, you know, getting at that point we were talking about before, where if there's an alternative, yes, it should be used. It seems very basic, very common sense. And yet we know it doesn't happen. So states started pushing on that. And that was around the cosmetics issue is how states started thinking about that you know, back in the 80s. Yeah, cosmetics is really the sweet spot here, isn't it, for making progress? It's it's a good place to start. 
it's considered the lower hanging fruit, but at the same time, you need to start there. And the the issue with cosmetics testing became a big issue, I think, in the 80s. You know, people were talking about it. But that's what spurred the innovation in developing the alternatives is, I mean, many of these companies, they invested in developing alternatives because they wanted a better way to test their products and they wanted to satisfy their customers. At the same time, these same tests have applications in other areas of science and, you know, in chemicals testing and in medicine testing. So there's this knockoff effect of investing in alternatives. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Nice to see that leading the way. Just to complete the picture, I know that there are also regulations. You had mentioned the NIH, which funds most of the research aside in this country. And the Public Health Service, they also both have have sets of regulations. Do they vary significantly from what the Animal Welfare Act requires? So they're similar. So in just kind of break down in that area of, of animal experimentation, in 1985, there were amendments to the Animal Welfare Act, and this is what established Institutional Animal Care and Use Committees, or we call them IACUCs. And these are self-monitoring committees at research facilities that are responsible for ensuring compliance with the Animal Welfare Act and the Public Health Service Policy on humane care and use of laboratory animals. So they are very similar policies. The um, public health service policy is not a law, it's a policy, and it co- it does cover um, rats and mice, so they, in that space, get covered a bit. But they're charged with reviewing um, animal experiments proposals. When somebody makes a proposal to do an animal experiment, the IOCUC is supposed to review that and make sure that the researcher considers alternatives to the painful use of animals and that they don't duplicate previous experiments. However, the problem, that sounds all great, but there's no uniform standard on what constitutes considering alternatives. That's a very weak term. It has become a very much of a checkbox approach. Usually by the time the researcher wants to propose a research product, they've decided they're going to use animals. And this considering alternative becomes sort of an afterthought. And the IACUCs are made up of their peers, many of them. In some cases, there can be strong conflicts of interest. The IACUC wants to get the grant money, so they're going, they have a strong incentive to approve the proposal because NIH won't approve and give grant money to a proposal that the IACUC hasn't signed off on. And in some cases, somebody on the committee could be subordinate to a person who was submitting a proposal. So there's many... um, areas where that doesn't actually guarantee that available alternatives to basic research or more human-based will be actually used. And that's why we're working on a bill called the HEARTS Act to help ensure that the non-animal methods are prioritized and the researchers really do have to look for that. And we can talk more about what the HEARTS Act will do. But that kind of brings us into that point is is some shortcomings in existing law that we're trying to address. Now, getting rid of that language that they have to consider alternatives and then like throw them out the window if they want. Like it's just really bad legal language. And I do want to get to the HEARTS Act. That's like the heart of the interview. But before I do, I just have a couple of more issues about, about motivations. We talked a little bit about people just being set in their ways, but I'm wondering if there's any way to follow the money here, like it seems like researchers, other than, you know, a really big problem of having to learn new methods and scientists don't like to feel that what the way they've been doing it is wrong. And now they have to start all over doing something that the kids are doing. I can understand that. But who is likely to lose financially? I remember back in the day, I used to hear a lot that the suppliers of animals were politically powerful, like Charles Rivers Labs. Charles River Labs was a big name. I mean, I've been 
We've been hanging around the animal rights movement for a long time. Is that still the case? Is there money? Are there money interests involved in wanting to to hold on to animal testing rather than move on? Oh, of course. Um, you've mentioned some of them. Obviously, there's big money in supplying laboratory animals. That's an interest. And then there is the, you know, you've mentioned it, researchers who have built their careers on animal research. They don't want to admit that there's other ways to do it, or they want to compare their studies to previous studies. And that becomes a circular reasoning, or the, the justification for using an animal is that we've used them in the past, or we're comfortable with them, or we can compare. And that, that sets up this circular reasoning where the justification for using the animal is that we've always used the animal, and you know, then it perpetuates on. There's also this fear that a, a publishing bias, you know, one of the big issues for researchers getting published. You want your, your work to be published and that if you don't use the, that you're more likely to get published if you have the animal research data, or even if you try to publish something without animal data, that the reviewers will ask for the animal data to be included in your paper to compare to. So there's a bias there. And that also trickles down into the grant proposals that there is this sort of un, unspoken perception that you are more likely to get funded using a tried and true or a animal model that um, everyone's more comfortable with. Yeah, that all of that makes total sense. That is exactly how the world, how the world works. So you are trying to tackle a lot of these problems with the Hearts Act. And can you just explain to people basically what it would do? The Hearts Act, it stands for the Humane and Existing Alternatives in Research Testing Sciences Act. But it's nice much work. Just, nice work in coming up with we that. We love acronyms. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, the reason for that. But it's very, it's, it's a common sense bill, as we've talked about. What It will do four main things. It will require, it will amend the Health Services Research Act to say that they have to establish incentives for investigators to use available non-animal methods. And when we say incentives, we've left that open, but it's usually money or in the grant review process, there's a point system, you know, assigned to your grant proposal. They can add incentives there to make sure that there is some incentive to use available non-animal methods. It requires that investigators fully evaluate available non-animal methods using standardized guidelines. So they're not just saying, do a literature search. They're saying, here's a set of guidelines for what we mean when we say you've, you've considered alternatives. Standardize that. So each IACUC isn't deciding what that means. And that the research proposals are reviewed by at least one person that has expertise in non-animal research methods. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Get somebody in there who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And then the fourth point goes back to making sure they've actually looked at it. You know, there's lots of information out there that they have access to a reference librarian that can evaluate how adequately they searched and considered that alternative. So those, it seems very basic, but what we're trying to do is just reinforce that alternatives they're available. This area of science is expanding. We need to make sure they're being used and that we're better investing our current taxpayer-funded money. That's NIH money is taxpayer dollars that we're using it in the best way possible. And we've done polling. Most taxpayers agree that medical researchers asking for public money should be required to show that a non-animal alternative is not available before getting money for an experiment. And they also agree overwhelmingly across party lines, demographics, that they should be required to show that animals are absolutely required before getting money. So they agree with the, the tenants of this bill. It also 
is bipartisan. It doesn't require anybody to have a position on whether they think that animal testing is valuable or not. All they have to do is agree that when the alternative, if there's another way to do it, that it should be used, that should be the first point. So it's really taking that word consider alternatives to the current act and vastly expanding what considering means. Yeah, the shortcomings in how grant proposals are currently reviewed. We did a deep dive in that, and I got many of my ideas for proposing this bill from a book by Dr. John P. Gluck. He wrote a book called Verocious Science and Vulnerable Animals. He's been been on the podcast. Wonderful, wonderful interview. Yeah, I read his book, and he really explained the shortcomings in the current system and why animal research could persist even in the face of available other ways of doing things. And I came up with some of these corrections that I thought would get support. And he's been in support of the bill as well, because of course I asked his opinion on it being somebody who definitely has seen the problems with the current system. And so that's the Hearts Act. One of the, I think, best trends in in this whole field is the fact, and he was one of the leaders of people who were in research starting occasionally, one or two here and there, who have serious jobs in research and have had careers starting to speak out and and wanting to find another way. So yeah, I that seems like a very modest proposal. And I hope other people think it is as well. I also know that one of the latest trends at the state level regarding animals and research, and this is something that you're involved in, especially for dogs, not just dogs, though, is an effort to get them homed, uh, get them into homes and adopted once the research on them is over. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you're trying to actually work at the, on that at the federal level. Is that right? Yeah. So the states really were the testing ground for that. And other groups worked on that. And it became, there's now 14 states. Iowa just passed a law, the 14 states that have laws on the book that require usually public funded entities, those that accept taxpayer money, to rehome dogs and cats if they're no longer wanted for research. So what we've done is we've introduced the Companion Animal Release from Experiments Act, which would be a federal bill that would require all facilities that receive NIH money, which is most, you know, places, that's the taxpayer um, aspect to it, to have adoption policies for dogs, cats, and rabbits when no longer used for research, and that they would be required to have adoption policies and allow those animals to be adopted. And they can work with rescues, they can adopt them out themselves, but they'd have to have those policies in place. And we have an accountability piece to that as well. They'd have to post that adoption policy on their website and report each year on how many animals were destroyed and how many were adopted so that we can see whether or not it's working. Do you have any fear that these approaches, which of course, you know, I'm not speaking against them in any way because there's nothing more heartwarming than seeing an animal come out coming out of that situation and finding a home. But it leaves so we, we've left so many animals behind in our regulation, particularly when rats, mice, and birds got written out of the Animal Welfare Act. And this is a, you know, just another step that is just focusing on mostly on cats and dogs, perhaps rabbits, I guess, occasionally, and leaving all the other animals behind. Does does that worry you? So the reason we did that, it does worry me that I would, of course, want all the animals to have that opportunity for this federal bill and that it, it that covers extramural research. So it's impacts different areas. We focused on the animals that 
dogs, cats, and rabbits were most commonly kept as companion animals, and that we knew that there are rescue groups available to help place them. That's you can't put monkeys into into homes and sanctuaries. It's a bit more complicated. There's another bill that works on that, but it's only intramural research. So the federal agencies would be required to home all their animals, but these for across the states for the extramural research, we focused on those three. And we would hope that once facilities got comfortable and saw the success of the program, that they would expand it to the other animals as as able. But yeah, that's the reason that we focused on those is because of the availability of rescue groups to help them and the ability of these animals to really live in homes. And we added the rabbits. Most um, states haven't done rabbits, but we know that rabbits can be home. In fact, I have a um, former laboratory rabbit Foster Rabbit in my office right now. She's hopping around and um, she's ready for adoption. But um, so we know firsthand that rabbits can also be homed very successfully. I mean, of course, there's also the fear that, you know, there's already, well, with dogs, homelessness has gotten a little bit better. But, you know, there are already a lot of homeless animals out there. I mean, there are just a lot of issues here, as there always are when when you involve animals, because, you know, there's just so many aspects to what is we do to animals. But it seems like one of the most valuable things in these kinds of bills is it breaks that wall that so many people have between the animals we love and the animals we use. And it's just saying, all right, the animals we use are also, even with dogs and cats, you know, people see them in a lab and might think, well, those are lab animals. Just manage to create these compartments in their head and it's kind of breaks through that wall. Do you consider that a valuable piece of this? Exactly. It's it's that they're no different. It also reminds people, I think people forgot there for a while, that dogs are actually used in research. They tended to forget that. And I think um, the industry likes people to forget that. And so when they started the idea that animals were being released from labs and coming into homes, not only are they no different than our companion animals that we all know and love, it's that it reminded that, wow, that's still happening. It's a way for it reminds people that it's still an ongoing issue and and refocuses that. And I love the idea that, yes, it only helps those animals that are released, that those individual lives, those matter. So I really like the idea for this work is that I'm working at both ends of the pipe. If you imagine it's an oil leak and the oil's coming out and I'm cleaning up there, that's helping those individual animals. But I'm also working at the valve, trying to turn off the valve to stop the pipeline of animals that are coming. So working at both ends, helping the survivors that are here now and, and the individual lives that need help and can their lives can be directly impacted, but also working the longer goal is to not have them in the lab in the first place. So we're working at both ends. Yeah. But I think working at the end of that pipeline and helping those those refugees from this world is going to help the impetus to to do something about feeding them into that pipeline. So it all does seem to go together. You have, of course, mentioned, and I think it's obvious, that the place where we're making the most progress is cosmetics testing. So can you tell us what's been happening at the at the state level vis-a-vis cosmetics testing? And I, I'm in, personally in New York, so I understand it's happening right now here. Yeah, the New York Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act just passed the legislature and is waiting for signage on... Governor Hochul's desk. Um, So we hope that New York will be the ninth state to pass a prohibition on the sale of cosmetics that involve new animal testing. So what the states have done, when I say new animal testing, it's testing that takes place from the date of enactment of the law moving forward. We know historically almost everything was tested at one point, so that old data can be used 
but these states have passed laws now, nine states, that require that cosmetics sold don't involve new animal testing. And in the process, states really have informed federal legislation. There's the Federal Humane Cosmetics Act that would prohibit the act of animal testing, actually conducting animal tests, and also prohibit the sale of cosmetics that involve new animal testing. But in the process of working at the state level, we came to agreements with the cosmetics industry on many of these, the details of how that would look. And they actually now support our state efforts. The largest cosmetics manufacturing organization, the the, um, Personal Care Products Council, the PCPC, that represents 90% of the cosmetics industry has been supporting our state efforts. And those agreements that were reached at the state level have now been incorporated into the federal bill, which they now also are supporting. Uh, So what their interest is, is is having a level playing field to make sure everyone's using the alternatives and is, is operating on the same level playing field. How much does it still goes on of animal testing for cosmetics? Or is that something that you kind of don't have the resources to find out? We know that globally about a million animals, I think, was our, our number that it still goes on. But it, it goes on in other ways. It's less now that we're fighting with companies just wanting to carelessly use, you know, animals. And it's that we've come to a point where we're more on the same side with companies now making sure that regulators aren't needlessly requesting animal tests. So we're very much like someone, as I mentioned early on, many of the companies are the ones that invested in developing these alternatives because they knew the writing was on the wall. It's what consumers wanted and they were better at predicting human safety. So now we have to just make sure, like we started at the beginning of the program, that those alternatives are actually used and that regulators aren't asking for animal tests for cosmetic products or other um, products. Yeah, that's interesting. And that brings up, I think, one of the really big issues, and I don't exactly know what's going on with this, but China... And now that China has become such a huge market and they have more requirement, they have animal testing requirements, I understand, for cosmetics. How do, how do these laws deal with companies that do want to do business in China? Yeah. So the good news with China is that things are changing. We have been working there very hard with many other groups as well to come to a point where the Chinese regulators will accept the alternatives and will stop requiring that imported products submit animal testing data. So things are changing. So that problem will hopefully be going away. But it, it had been a tricky situation, especially at a state level. States really can't dictate foreign policy, you know, so uh, was how to deal with that. In those, those laws, what we basically arrived at was a compromise where if they tested their product to enter a foreign market, specifically this at the time was China, they couldn't then just turn around and use that animal t- testing data and say, well, we had to use it to test on animals to go into another country. So here's our safety data for our product being sold here. They would still have to have the non-animal safety data be able to substantiate the safety of their product without the animal testing. So we eliminated the ability to use it as a loophole, but we couldn't prevent them at the state level from entering um, a foreign market. But like I said, at the good news is we're working and the industry working as well to eliminate that problem and that challenge anyway. Yeah, that would be remarkable progress. So the products that that comply with these laws and the New York law, which probably will have been signed by the time this this podcast airs, knock on wood, (laughs) do they comply now with the Leaping Bunny? I think the Leaping Bunny is probably something that everybody who listens to this is, is familiar with. Is it the same rules that the Leaping Bunny has always imposed in order to get its label on a on a product? 
So your question is, did the state laws basically force compliance with Leaping Bunny standard? No, the Leaping Bunny standard would still go above and beyond what the law would require. There are fo- some exemptions in the state laws and, and the federal where animal testing would, would potentially be used. And I think it would be rare that they would be used in those cases, but they're still there. That would not be a law under the Leaping Bunny criteria. So that's still the gold standard. And it also has the aspect that their supply lines are checked and they're audited. And so it still is a gold standard, but um, it wouldn't preclude that label from being used. And so in other countries where different laws maybe say that you can't label a product as, you know, cholesterol-free if it doesn't, it never has cholesterol, the, the logo like that, at least for that our program, I don't know about other programs, if it goes above and beyond what the law requires, the label can still be used. And the, the um, Leaping Bunny logo oh, goes above and beyond federal and state and national requirements. And what about whether, none of these have anything to do with whether the product is vegan, do they? No. So people who care about that would still want to check that label to make sure that the product is both vegan and well, I mean, as I've always heard, if it's not vegan, it's not cruelty free. But but so you want to check for both. Yeah. Yeah. Though I have to say, I've looked in in cosmetics departments and I don't know, ads or whatever. You see the word vegan all the time now. All of a sudden it's become a thing for everybody's cosmetics to be vegan, which is just really exciting. So I know that you focus on North America in your work, but since these are international businesses, it's inevitable that aside from the whole China issue, international regulation affects what happens here. Are there any important trends internationally that are affecting what is possible in the U.S. other than other than either in a positive way or, or a negative way that we haven't mentioned? It's what we've said before. What we have mentioned is that there is this explosion right now in the development of alternatives. And it's really the intersection of of the acceptance, the regulatory acceptance of those alternatives and making sure that if the alternative is accepted in one regulatory scheme, like say under cosmetics or, you know, environment, it's also accepted under. So the FDA and the, you know, would accept those alternatives under drug development as well as chemical under the EPA. So there's all that interplay is really, and that's international, of course, like we mentioned before. So yes, that it's an exciting time. There's more human relevant methods being developed all the time and it's making sure those actually get implemented and accepted. And that the at the same time that the old test gets deleted and is no longer required. So it's not just a situation where they have the new alternative, but they're using both. That doesn't help animals. We need to stop using the animal test and making sure that when it's accepted in one country, we have to make sure that the other country also accepts it. Otherwise, it doesn't end. They have to conduct the test for a different market. It seems like in in order to support your work, people... I mean, both have to look for that, the leaping bunny symbol, but also there's a, I mean, hugely political aspect to what's going on now and supporting these statues. So can you tell people how they can support these statues and otherwise support the the growth of alternatives? So for the bills we talked about, the Hearts Act, that's in the House of Representatives. It's a bipartisan bill. They can contact their U.S. representative and ask them to become a co-sponsor because that helps build momentum for, for passing those bills. And they can do the same. It's also the House of Representatives. At the same time, ask them to become a co-sponsor of the CARE Act. That's the homing bill to make sure that animals 
who can be adopted out of laboratories have that opportunity. And at the same time, the third one is the Humane Cosmetics Act. They can ask their legislator and they can also ask their senator to become a co-sponsor of Humane Cosmetics Act because that bill is in the Senate also. So that's that piece. Of course, purchasing cruelty-free products and making sure they're keeping that consumer pressure because honestly, it's the consumer pressure that made all this change possible. And to um, realize that your individual choices do matter and make a difference in that. And um, on the very individual level, if they wanted to get directly involved, it's hugely rewarding to foster a animal that comes from a lab and help them um, on their way to living their, their new life. It's a very personal, direct care action. I think it's nice to be able to do both work on the the advocacy side, but also have that direct, at least I enjoy it, the direct connection to an animal to see it in real time, your impact. Absolutely. Are there any states in which a bill is pending other than New York State where it's already passed, where people should be active? Right now, the legislative sessions are wrapping up. So for the bills that I'm working on and and where I don't have any state action that people could take right now, but if they want their legislators to introduce either a cosmetics bill or one of these other bills and they don't already have it, they can contact me and I can give them some model legislation to ask they can um, have introduced in their state. Yeah, and now that it's passed, I mean, I'm sure the first one is always the hard one, but now that it's passed in a number of states, I'm sure that becomes much more feasible in other states as well. They're really exciting stuff going on in this area. It's nice to talk to somebody who's doing something that's seeing some success when you when you deal with animals that doesn't happen all the time. So thank you so much for sharing it all with us, Monica. It's really been fascinating. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxiety's arising. Our first story is from Watt Agnet. Is cultured meat friend or foe? We're seeing more and more articles about cultured meat. They're getting nervous. They know it's going to be authorized fairly soon. So their anxieties are rising. Is culture, this is an article by one Mark Clements. Is cultured meat a threat or opportunity? Is laboratory grown meat, they love that expression, <laughs> laboratory grown meat, likely to displace chicken and pork first or beef and lamb, or perhaps it will simply be an alternative with little impact on traditional meat production. The truth is nobody really knows. A study starting in the UK later this year aims to address these very questions. That should be interesting. 
And he points out that while few of us have eaten cultured meat, it appears to be getting ever closer to our dinner tables. And you know, notice while he used the expression laboratory grown meat, everybody seems to be settling on cultured meat. A report from management consulting firm McKinsey and Company published last year revealed that since developing the first prototypes, companies have been able to reduce production costs by 99%. And that was last year. There's, it's still not cheap enough yet, of course, because it's not subsidized, but they're getting there. Among areas to be explored by the UK study will be weather. Rather than seeing each other as rivals, farmers and cell-based meat businesses could work together to feed the world sustainably. Don't you love that idea? Well, I know it would be nicer if the only people who made money off of this were the vegans, but that ain't going to happen. What agricultural ingredients, he goes on to say, will a laboratory meat need and might it one day be craft brewed on farm? You know, they're really starting to think proactively. I think it's a very good sign. They're definitely shifting into if you can't beat them. And I think they're planning on joining them. I mean, joining us, joining whoever. Of course, they'll be the ones who will make all the money. They always are. The they, the terrible they. PETA petitions to strip, quote, humane language from meat labels. This is great. This is great. A great move from PETA. This is from Ag Daily. PETA is at it again. It starts off. And they're talking about this petition. You know, anybody can file a petition, a rulemaking petition. You don't have to have standing or anything fancy. And it's a starting point. It's not like bringing a lawsuit. It's a starting point, but I love this one. So apparently they are urging the agency to remove any labels that make claims as to the way animals are raised. They apparently have two grounds. The heart of the petition is that PETA believes no way of raising livestock is humane or appropriate. So to say anything to the contrary on food labels is wrong in the organization's eyes. Well, that seems pretty true. But they do actually have a backup argument. The petition gets more into the legalese by arguing that the FSIS, that's the Food Safety Inspection Service, doesn't have the scope to inspect producers of confirmed documentation. And thus, what's on food labels has the potential to be incorrect. Well, yeah, this is just such good thinking from PETA. If FSIS is not going to check to see whether the labels are true, they shouldn't allow not just humane claims, any kind of label, anything on a label. Labels are very, very precious territory and food labels have to be really careful. There are laws. So they shouldn't be allowed to put anything on there unless the agency is capable of checking it. And they don't check these. They don't even say claim they check them. They just let people put it on. So as Peter points out, by gaining the agency approval for this label, companies can then charge a surplus for quote unquote, humanely raised products. And nobody's checking. And obviously if they were checking, they would find out who's alive. So as this article points out, PETA is a longtime thorn in the side of animal agriculture. Isn't it just? And I like to see that their legal department over at PETA is just getting better and better. If you really care about animals, PETA says, the environment and your health, there's only one animal-friendly label you should look for, vegan. Exactly. Never mind that everyone, the article points out, has known for decades that growing cornerstone foods for vegan and vegetarian diets leads to the death of millions of animals each year. I mean, this old canard, which it is, it is true that many, many animals are killed, small animals such as mice, etc., are killed in the process of harvesting vegetable foods and grains. The only thing is, is that 
If you're eating meat, you're of course consuming more vegetable foods and grains because you're eating all of the grains that were fed to the animals that you're eating. And also maybe something could be done about this if anybody cared. Maybe there's a way to avoid killing all of these animals. All right, I'm not gonna go. <laughs> I know that if you've listened to the podcast a while, I know you you know that it's one of my favorite hobby horses. It drives me crazy when they say that because it's so stupid. But this article concludes, what does PETA actually do for animals? Seriously, we've tried to figure that out too. That is aside from touting veganism as the only humane option. But again, the truth and reality are way more complex. Actually, they're not more complex. It's pretty, pretty simple. Veganism is the only humane option. That is not that complicated a statement. Well, complicated is definitely the claim that they are making this week because it's this part of the next article as well from meetingplace.com from the meat business column by Gregory Bloom. Meets actual environmental impact. It's complicated. And he, he's talking about some food show he went to where he saw a keynote speaker wonder what it was, featuring the positive attributes of plant-based products and focusing on the hefty environmental impact that meat production causes the environment and the much more environmentally friendly impact of plant-based proteins. He goes through some of the claims that the speaker made. Said, and the speaker was quite passionate and dogmatic that we we're going to destroy the environment if we continue on our meat-eating self-indulgent path. She sounds like she was a great speaker, but Gregory didn't like her. He, he felt that as he was listening to the presentation from a meat industry perspective, the information presented was surely not objective. Yeah, from a meat industry perspective, like if you're looking at it, it's just such a funny sentence. If you're looking at it from a perspective, then yeah, it's of course, it's like, it's how, how, how can I say this? If you're looking at it from a perspective, it's not objective to start off with. In order to be objective, you're supposed to be looking at it neutral anyway. You, you know what I mean. Yes, meat has an environmental impact, but so does everything else. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's true. Everything does have an environmental impact. Some things have a bigger environmental impact. I think that would be the speaker's point. So how does one find out the actual objective non-spun environmental impact of meat or of plant-based products? As it turns out, getting the whole picture is complicated. You know what? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not that complicated. I mean, maybe getting the details is a little complicated, but I've seen these charts a million times. It's pretty simple. He's, he's just upset that they don't have their own charts. That's, that's what he's really upset about. He checked the websites of all the largest meat companies, the meat industry associations, and he didn't find any one-page downloadable fact sheets that can easily be turned into talking points for a presentation, a conversation, or a tweet. Well, maybe that's because they don't want to get sued <laughs> for lying. And you know, the fact is, if they really think that there's purveyors of plant-based products who are making incorrect environmental claims, well, they could sue them too. There are courts of law in this country where, you know, you can, and there are laws protecting consumers from false information, but no, that's, that doesn't seem to be what they want to do. 
because, and, and the reason he knows that they're lying, what I do know is that many in the plant-based industry are not just out there to provide a protein alternative that may or may not be more environmentally friendly and nutritious. They are determined to see an end to all meat production. And as I've said many times, Yes, that is exactly what they're determined to see. We see this in their TED Talks, websites, podcasts, and the transparently skewed data they present. Yeah, I mean, all of these companies and organizations, they're putting it out there. If you don't like it, go to court. He points out that he's not opposed to plant-based alternatives and that he believes that all of the companies that process meat, that's what they call it now, slaughtering animals is processing meat, should be in this space with their own product line. Yeah, as he points out from his point of view, better to offer your customers a plant-based product that you make as a protein alternative than to give up market share to the companies that want to end all animal ag. Interesting, right? Very similar to the spirit of the last article. If you can beat them, maybe you should join them. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye.